This morning, as uh, I was putting music on the music stand over there and Valerie was finding the right page for the scriptures and all these things, Hanjin was playing a beautiful hymn on the organ. And I noticed that both she and I were singing along, kind of you know, quietly under our breath, but maybe getting louder and louder. It's one of those hymns that you can't help but sing. And I know there are a lot of those. I hear it, and I just have to sing. It's the offertory, doesn't matter. I'm going to sing. I've got to do it. And there are a lot of songs that fall along those lines. They beg to be sung, not even just listened to, not just enjoyed, but participated in. And this is something that was discovered uh, three years ago by a man named Taufik Mawala, a Montreal native and 100% dad, who was driving down the road in his car in Montreal when a song began to play. This song, in fact, one that you undoubtedly have heard, not one that Hajin played this morning, but a, a song that is beautiful in its own way. You know that one? Turn that up a little bit. You know, this one, I think, is the, the Gaithers, or the Winans. Richard, can you not sing along? Here it comes. Yeah! All right, we got dancing. All right, that's not very Baptist. We got a little head bobbing over here. I thought at the beginning we got the da 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 All right, cut the music. Cut the music hard. All right, that was the song. I don't know about you, but that comes on, I'm singing along. And Mr. Moala felt the same way. And he turned it up, and he started singing. And he was singing at the top of his lungs for a minute or two, and then he saw blue flashing lights behind him. And he thought, well, they need to get past me, of course. And he started to pull over, and he noticed they weren't going past him. They, they pulled up behind him, and two cops came up on the right, and two cops came up on the left. And he thought, this has got to be a case of mistaken identity or something. And they said, open the window. And he opened the window, and they said, were you screaming in your car? He said, well, no, I was, I was singing. Now, Montreal has varying bylaws and ordinances depending on the neighborhood that you are in, but these police apparently felt this case fell under the category of, quote, noise resulting from cries, clamors, altercation, or cursing of any kind in the form of an uproar. It's prohibited in that part of the city and earned this 38-year-old father of two a $118 ticket. $118 Canadian, whatever. He said, I don't know if my voice was very bad, and that's why I got the ticket, but I was very shocked. There was an NPR article re recounting this whole thing, amused with the idea, how can you not sing along with this song, and can we really blame someone and penalize them? Honestly, I think the only thing that would have made sense uh, as kind of a conclusion to that particular traffic stop is if he would have said no singing along turned the song back up and all four cops would have started dancing and singing as well that's how it goes in my mind well we find a similar thing going on here in Luke 19 there is a a song and it is a song that people have been singing for thousands of years it is a messianic psalm of David a, a proclaiming of the coming of the one who will reverse the curse Bring in life where there is death. Bring in sight where there is blindness. Bring freedom where there is oppression. 
and people are unable to stop singing it. In fact, their leaders come along and tell them to stop and tell Jesus to tell them to stop, but nothing can stop them from singing. Now, we know that this is all happening, of course, at the beginning of a holy week. They didn't know it was holy week because the rest of it hadn't happened. Jesus knew, though. He knew he was going into Jerusalem for the last time. And that when he went into Jerusalem, it was going to come to a head with the authorities. He was going to be tried. He was going to be found guilty. He was going to be put to death. And on the third day, he would rise again. And as he went, we read, the whole company of disciples came up around him and began to praise him and began to shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And this is not just the 12 or the 72, but the broader group of all of his disciples. Disciples meaning followers. So we have the the crowds that followed Jesus around from place to place, following him down. And then we have a mass of people coming up out of Jerusalem who hear that he's on his way down, and they kind of meet in the middle, and they're there cheering. And of all the things in the Bible that I wish I could be a fly on the wall, or I guess on like somebody's shoulder or something, this is the one. This is at the top of the list. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I don't think I could bear to see Jesus on the cross. This, though, I would love to see. They shouted, Hosanna, save we pray, it means. Hosanna to the son of David, acknowledging that this is the great king to whom they owe their allegiance, the one who would come greater than David to save them, to rescue them in their time of need. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when you quote a psalm like that, Especially when you say the first line of the psalm, like when Jesus says, um, Father, uh, oh, good grief. (laughs) When he says, uh, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first line of a psalm, which means he's invoking the entire psalm, and everyone then is going to know he means the whole thing. And so we could do a study of, and we have in the past, that psalm and say, what is it that Jesus is claiming about himself? But all the people present knew. Everyone understood what it was that was happening. We have all these notes at the bottom of our study Bibles explaining each and every bullet point of the meaning of these things. Even those little children we sang about earlier would have known right off the bat, this is the Messiah, he's coming in, it's finally happening. And so they praise him, and we notice they praise Jesus based on his own nature, who he is, the son of David, the the one who's come in the name of the Lord, the one who's come to save us, they praise him, it says, for all the miracles. Or uh, the ESV says, the mighty works he has done. And then they, by saying Hosanna, plead for mercy from him. All in the same breath. All in the context of praise. This is the most fitting praise Jesus could possibly have received as he is entering into Jerusalem for the final time to die on a cross for our sins and rise again for our justification. And they all knew that 500 years earlier, before this triumphal entry, the prophet Zechariah had foretold exactly in these terms this exact event. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. This action of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and on the foal of a donkey is pregnant with meaning going back thousands of years. The Pharisees know what he's doing, and they don't like it one bit. Read in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now we see that at the end of this passage, Jesus is going to be weeping. If you keep reading and kind of harmonize the Gospels, it seems that right after this, the next event involves him being very angry, overturning tables in the temple. But here, it seems to me, I've always imagined it anyway, that Jesus must be smiling. Because what they are saying to him is so silly, so petty, these objections and these demands, and his response is just so fun. I could tell them to stop, but if I did, the very rocks would cry out. And of course, they had nothing to say that to that whatsoever. Jesus, of course, is speaking proverbially rather than talking about a literal, literal uh, you know, rock concert kind of situation. He's also... Huh? I'm a dad, too. Guess what I do when C&C Music Factory comes on the radio? This is a, a reference back, an allusion to Habakkuk 2.11. In fact, let me read that little passage. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. There's a, a scriptural passage he's pointing back to. We'll look at that again in a minute. But even though he's, he's making that reference, he's more broadly just using a common proverbial phrase. The Greeks used it, the Romans used it, Cicero quotes it almost verbatim the way Jesus says it. Basically, when you say that if, this, if we were all silent, the rocks would cry out, it just means that this is something that cannot go unspoken. It must be proclaimed. In this case, the glory of Jesus and what he came to do. But even though it was a, a widespread, widely understood and accepted idiom or proverb, it had special meaning in the biblical context, especially when we think of what Jesus came to do for us and how his, his ministry goes in kind of concentric circles out, 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 outward, and how even after his death and resurrection, it continues to go outward, even into the Gentiles, and as he says in Matthew 28, to the ends of the earth. Even before he began his ministry, right before, remember John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, he was preaching, and he says to the people, don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say unto you, God is able out of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's talking about how God has the ability, even out of stones, to bring praise to himself. And this is a veiled reference, indeed, to God bringing in Gentiles into the body, into the family of God. Just as we read in Romans 11, where he takes the wild shoots and grafts them in, where the natural branches were broken off. But even though this is purely proverbial language, even though that's quite clear as we read it, almost every commentary, almost every sermon I've ever heard or read on this text always asks the question, could they really have spoken? Would this really have happened? What would that have looked like? And to that, I guess the answer is, sure, why not? I mean, God created man out of the dust of the earth. What is that but really small rocks out of the soil? In fact, his name Adam is from the word of Adma, the, the word for land or, or ground or earth. It's not that crazy an idea. It's not that big a stretch from what he's already done. And I think we actually see, in a sense, and again, in a poetic and metaphorical sense, which is the way Jesus is speaking, rocks crying out and praising him throughout the scriptures. We see this in general revelation. General revelation is stuff that unbelievers can see and understand. You don't need some 
insight to discern these spiritual things spiritually. So like when we just heard the heavens declare the glory of God, that means that you, you can know nothing about God other than that he exists. Everyone knows that. Walk out into the, the field at night and look up into the beautiful night sky and see all the, the stars and say, wow, that's beautiful. That's amazing. And heavens are declaring the glory of God. This is general revelation. We, we read in that psalm and, and we sing in our own hymns, perhaps. Uh, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. You know that one? Join with all nature in manifold witness. Nature is declaring the glory of God. And the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Creation is groaning for Jesus to come and finish what he started. The rocks, if they could speak, would praise God for making them. And, and indeed, they would have a great kind of point of view, perspective. They've been here way longer than we were, right? The, the rocks would be able to talk about the formless void and, and the chaos they would be able to talk about being created and, 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 and kind of filtered into the geologic column, which is how we know so much of what we know about the history of our planet. The, the stones of the temple itself could proclaim how God had broken them in just the right way. Remember when they built the temple, nothing was taken to a quarry to be broken. They, they quarried the rocks and they were unhewn. They found the ones that would fit and were perfect. God had done that. They could proclaim God's glory. Out of the chaos of just looking around and seeing rocks everywhere, we have these strange situations where there's order. God brings order from chaos. One thing I want to see, maybe the only thing I really want to see in Ireland or Scotland, is that crazy thing where uh, on two sides, separated by the, the sea there, there's these two situations where you have all these hexagonal or octagonal, which is it? I think they're hexagons. Like these large pillars just coming up different heights out of the earth, perfectly ordered. And you look at that and think, wow, the heavens and the earth, the rocks and the ground itself declares what God has done. But also in special revelation from the beginning of the Bible, we've talked just a little while ago as we were finishing up this series on Esther about the Ebenezers, the standing stones that are set up throughout the Old Testament history. Stacked up stones or a stood up stone in order to commemorate an event. And it's named after an attribute of God and how great he is. So that whenever they go by, these stones literally are telling a story and, and speaking about the glory of God. As you walk by the Jordan River and the kids say, why are, why are those, how, how are those piles of rocks there in the middle? They can talk about the time that God caused the, the piling up of the waters and the people crossed over on dry ground. Special revelation indeed. And a week later here, when Christ is hanging on the cross and his disciples have scattered and are no longer praising him, but are hiding and looking out for their own safety and well-being, we read that the earth did quake and the rocks did rent as Jesus is on the cross, even when the Pharisees and Sadducees briefly succeeded in silencing Jesus' disciples. They couldn't silence his praise. The rocks themselves did cry out, in a sense, and declare the glory of God. And of course, on Easter Sunday, that stone rolled away to reveal an empty tomb is declaring the glory and power of a God who comes to save his people. In the King James Version, Jesus says, verily, he says that a lot. And here he says, verily, I say unto you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones themselves 
would cry out. I, I read that this week, and it made me think about how there's certain aspects of the, the wedding ceremony that I always say in the old-timey thing. And I, I always say that one. If anyone here, and I insist on having this passage in the weddings, even when people say that's old-fashioned. If anyone knows a reason why this man and this woman should not be lawfully joined together, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Right? And you can say and for, or forever be quiet, but that doesn't have the same hold his peace. Hey, holding one's peace is an old-timey saying here. The, the meaning is to not speak even though there is something you want to or ought to say. It's done now. They're married. So even though inside you, you should be saying something, you want to be saying something, there's really nothing left to say. Well, Jesus says, if these people do that about my glory, if they hold their peace, the rocks will cry out. And when I, when I think of a holding your peace, it makes me think of our situation now as Christians. We have peace with God if we put our faith in Jesus, if we've been forgiven of our sins, if we've been born again, we have that peace. And too often we're content to just hold on to that peace. It's mine. I have it. I like it. It's none of your business. And I'm going to be very secretive about it. This is what Jesus is talking about here. If these hold their peace. Certainly, yes, hold it dear. It is precious, but not quietly, not privately, secretly, not this thing is so personal, I never talk about it with anyone else. No one else hears me declaring the glory of God. I might do that whispered into my pillow at 2 a.m., but good grief, I'm not some kind of religious fanatic. Shout God's praise. That is how we respond to our God. Proclaim his goodness, what he has done for you, and do it without regard for what others would say. This is what they're doing here. They know that they are in trouble with the, I mean, think about if you are in Jerusalem in that time, the power that the Sadducees and Pharisees, especially those who are on the Sanhedrin, have over you, and they cannot keep themselves quiet. And they, and they don't care what will be the fallout in that moment. They do it without regard for what others might think. And this should be true in all of life for all of us, especially in the church. Especially in the church. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 I keep bringing back Ephesians. I don't know why it's on my mind. Probably because we were in it for like nine years or something. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's a lot there. We already unpacked it. But notice, if you're filled with the Spirit, you are going to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, not just in your heart, with your heart. It's going to come out of you. You can't keep it in. You can't hold it back. And yes, there is certainly something to be said for a sense of solemnity and reverence in the church. I think it's sad that that has been lost almost everywhere now. But if our worship does not also offer you a conduit for joy and praise to shout the good news of Jesus and thank him for his faithfulness, well, then we've missed the whole point. Great Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I hold the doctrine that Christians ought to be gloomy will soon be driven out of the universe. I think we're still waiting on that, but we've made some progress. I think it's Steve Wakeford who went to be with the Lord earlier this year. He used to be so insistent about shouting amen that he'd find somewhere in the sermon to shout it even if the sermon was a dud. 
He wanted, and he knew that people at first were going to look at him. He told me this. Yeah, I know. I'm going to say amen, and everyone's going to turn and look at me. But I don't care what they think. I'm going to shout amen, too. I'm going to keep shouting amen in our worship until it catches on. He wanted our congregation to be more, you know, Baptist, I guess. You know, I've noticed that too. You shout amen in a context where I, I, I experimented with that here and there. In a context where it's not accepted, it's not the norm, people will kind of turn and look. And then you're like, do I stare straight ahead? Do I look at them? What? I look at them. Actually, what I do is I shout amen, they wheel and look at me, and then I go, all right. Then I shout amen next time, already looking at them, and they turn and we make eye contact, and it's over. They don't look back again. <laughs> but in verse 39, Luke tells us exactly why the Pharisees were even there to begin with, and it wasn't to be part of the festivities. It's that they came in order to find some reason to arrest him. They came and were dealing with, I mean, he was teaching daily in the temple. Verse 47, uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that would do the trick. So they were there to kind of destroy him to be nitpicky to take what he said and turn it around and so why why would we care what people like that think why would you care if you shout amen and there are people who kind of grumble and shake their heads you shouldn't steve also by the way would sing at the top of his lungs even though he could not carry a tune in a bucket for three inches he didn't care he sang to his savior and his savior heard those those notes as if they were perfectly executed Verse 37, we read that all the disciples, as they gathered around, began to, quote, joyfully praise God with loud voices. Loud voices. Some of us have loud voices, naturally. All of us can lift up our, our voices to whatever degree we are able. I've known people who had tracheotomies who were singing loudly their version of loudly to God in praise, even though it wasn't very audible to the other people around them, singing loudly from their hearts. I'm always confused by people who don't sing. How They can pick up a hymnal and stand there. Now, I understand if you're not a believer, I respect not singing these words that you don't agree with or haven't quite bought into. If you're a seeker or you're like, I'm not sure, or if it's a hymn that you're like, eh, I think there's a doctrinal issue there. Okay, yeah, hold back. You don't want to sing God's name in vain. That's not a good idea either. But I don't get how someone can, can open up to a mighty fortress is our God and just sort of hmm, mighty fortress. mumble along or murmur or nothing at all. Well, pastor, I don't have a great voice. Who cares? You know what? If you take a scientific instrument that measures the pitch exactly down to the point zero 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 one of a tone, everyone, the best singer in the world is off key to some degree. And that's how God can hear us perfectly. His standard is perfection. No one reaches that when they're singing. Not Sandy Patty, not who, that was a dated reference. Not, not whoever's the new Sandy Patty. Like no one can do it. And yet God wants to hear our praise. When our songs of joy reach his ears, he hears our hearts and they sound beautiful to him. And know that you, you should be learning to enjoy, even if you don't already, learning to enjoy singing God's praise because you're going to be spending like forever doing it if you are a believer. If you think, well, I will enjoy praising God then, 
but I don't really dig it now. That's, com- that's weird reasoning. The scriptures say, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I think in that there's another bit of the kind of general revelation. Everything that has breath means everything that's alive. So even you know, the armadillos and the uh, white-tailed mongoose, or something, I made up an animal there. They all praise the Lord just by being alive and being amazing. But most of all, those of us made in God's image, how do we not? The, the word breath there, it, it means uh, spirit, that which animates life. Are you alive? Do you have a spirit? Do you have the spirit in you? Are you a disciple? Well, then every breath, every word, every moment of our lives are to praise him and not generally, as a rule, silently, secretly. Even even when we, I mean, Jesus says, yeah, go and pray to God in your closet. Don't make a show of it in a kind of religious theater kind of way. But when Daniel was arrested and thrown in the lion's den, you remember why? He'd been praying to God when it was not allowed. He would go and he would pray and he would do it by himself. And obviously there were some spies, but he did, he did it in a way where they said, oh, we know that you're praying and we know that you're praying to this Hebrew God and that's illegal. He couldn't keep himself from praising God. You, you pray out loud when you're driving. Everyone who drives by won't think you're crazy these days. They'll think you're on the phone. You can pray to God out loud, and there's something better than that. You can sing his praises out loud. You might get pulled over if you're in Montreal driving around singing his praises, but it's worth it. You might say, hold on a minute, Pastor. What, what are you talking about loud voice? What about, that, what about that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? And the Pharisee is loudly saying, oh, Lord, thank you for making me great and not like this guy and all that. And then the, the tax collector's beating his breast, won't look up to heaven and just kind of sobbing and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the way to approach him. Yes, yes. That's the way we go to him with our sins. On our face, poor in spirit, not thinking that we are something impressive. But then he says, of those two It was the tax collector who left the temple that day justified. His sins were forgiven. Now he's got reason to celebrate and to shout. And that is the greatest reason anyone could ever have to praise God and praise him with a loud voice. In fact, that's what they were thinking here for his mighty works. And that's the mightiest of works. As I mentioned with the kids, how smart are these kids, by the way? Like, everybody was popping in with this stuff. I, I think that uh, our, I think our, our teachers are doing a spectacular job, and, and our parents as well. But, but uh, the most recent miracles that they would have heard about, that would have happened, would have been the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That got people excited. And the healing of blind Bartimaeus, giving him his sight back. And both of those, and indeed all of Christ's miracles in the Gospels, are pictures of our salvation of what Christ will do for us spiritually. Like the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, they were living pictures of spiritual realities. Now when Jesus enters the picture, the lame walk and even run, the paralyzed stand up, the blind see, lepers are made clean, the dead live again. But what do we do with the mute man in Decapolis? When Jesus touched his tongue... And he could speak. Well, he does that for all of us as well. If he has given you life, 
He's given you eyes to see and washed away your leprous uncleanness in the Spirit. You will use your tongue to praise Him. Could they have? Could the rocks have cried out? It's a silly question because there's no way we're going to find out. We're not going to let them. That must be the goal of every Christian to say, did I live my life today in a way and praise my God today in a way where no rock anywhere in the vicinity of me would have a chance to cry out his praise. And you know, there's one more thing that I think is fascinating about the intertextuality here, meaning the the play between different sections of the Bible here between Jesus referencing Habakkuk 2 and his uh, statements about the rocks crying out. We saw here, I read it for you, two verses, and you might have thought that it seemed a little bit odd. It's not a happy passage. You have devised shame. He's talking to the Chaldeans. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off my peoples, many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. In that case, it's not a good thing that the rocks are crying out. Now, in neither case is it a good thing, but this isn't the rocks saying, we'll do the good work and praise God. It's the rocks bearing a witness against the people. That may be what Jesus has in mind here. If these hold their peace, these very stones will cry out against them. And we do see that after this, there are going to be a a, a series of sad and angry events as Jesus walks into Jerusalem. Because though there are many people who choose not to praise God right now, there's coming a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus Christ, that He is Lord. For some it will be joyful, giving praise for the salvation they have received. For others it will be as conquered enemies. And at the end of this passage, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem He weeps that so many did not receive him, even though there was a crowd there. He weeps that many in the crowd didn't understand what kind of deliverance he brought. He weeps over those who were silent as well. As we close, let me just ask the question, why should we praise God? Why? Yes, yes, we see that Jesus said it's good. He liked it. But why should we do it day after day? First of all, we're commanded to. The book of Psalms is full of calls to praise. In fact, the word hallelujah is actually a command. Did you know that's a command in the plural? So it's a command to multiple people, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. You've heard it said, praise ye the Lord in the King James. Every time you read hallelujah, it's telling you, praise the Lord. It's telling us, actually, praise the Lord. That's a a command, and that's throughout the Scriptures. We have many, many calls to lift up God's name. We have examples throughout Scripture. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Psalm 34, 1. uh, David writing, I will bless the Lord at all times. This praise shall continually be in my mouth. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I'm not going to let it leave. We praise God because we always have a reason to, even when it seems like we don't. And you know, I've heard people say, well, when I come to, to church, I, I can't sing the hymns very much. I can't sing the songs. I can't. I have a hard time because I feel like a faker. I feel like an imposter. I, I, I've not been the best Christian all week. I've yelled at my kids. 
I've sworn here and there. I've said things or seen things or done things that I shouldn't have and, and, and liked it. And now I say, well, God, I'm here, but maybe you don't want me here. Let me ask you this. Have you ever walked into your house, if you're married especially, here you walk in, you've eaten a lot of onions, you've eaten some garlic, you have bad breath, your spouse walks up to give you a kiss. What do you do? Now, if you're kind of obnoxious, you just kiss them and say, there you go, enjoy that. Uh, but you know what I do? I say, I'm sorry, I had a really gross lunch and you don't want to kiss me right now, let's never kiss again. <laughs> no, I say, give me one second, I'm going to go hit this with some, some Colgate, some scope, some chemicals here, we'll, we'll clean that all out and then I would love to kiss you because I love you and kissing you is something I greatly enjoy. Well, when we come together as the church, yes, we know we have kind of the aroma of sin on us, even if we have been in prayer, even if we've been following as close as we can, even if we have been confessing our sins regularly because we continually stray, we, we sin in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and what we've failed to do. All of us come in here yet needing forgiveness. And that's why it's so important we hear the gospel and receive it and know we are even now forgiven, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's, in fact, what draws us together. So that we can kiss the Son, as the Psalm 2 says. So that we can, we can come to Him and He will gladly receive our praise. He will gladly receive our affection and our adoration. And yeah, there are going to be the Pharisees who say, ugh, yuck. I, I think, I remember back a few years, yeah, it's probably more like 10 or 15 years now, there was a, a big controversy about a praise song. It said, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And people thought, well, that's some weird way to talk about Jesus coming down. I thought it was kind of a cool line. And then somebody kind of dumbed it down and said, no, no, no. And now it's heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. And I said, that's all kinds of other troubling. I don't like that at all. I like the sloppy way. You know, whether you sing that song that way or not, there's going to be people who are going to go, ah, so emotional, so, so overwrought, so bombastic. Can't we have this kind of buttoned up kind of proper worship? Now, I'm not, I'm not judging people whose worship is in a, a kind of liturgical or st uh, very uh, formal setting. I love that too, but I've also seen people move to great praise in that context as well. If we are going to come to him, we cannot care what the person next to us will think, what the person who sees, uh, sees me singing God's praise as I drive down the road or hears me talking to everyone who will listen about what God has done for me, we have to think to ourselves, am I going to let the rocks cry out on my behalf today or am I going to do the job? I think of the woman who came and, and wept on Jesus' feet, dried his feet with her hair and then kissed them over and over again. And people present said, oh, that's, ugh. if you knew what kind of woman, he said, no, that's a beautiful thing she just did. Same thing with the woman who poured the nard on his feet. Same thing with those who were proclaiming his deity and his messiahship that day. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Tell them to stop. Rebuke them. I can't. This is what they ought to be doing. We always have a reason to. And, and when we remember that, we praise God because that is a witness to the world. It shows them that we are not fair-weather followers who only serve this God and love this God when things are going well, going our way. 
In Philippians 4, Paul tells us to be content in all circumstances, but he in his life takes it way beyond that. In Acts 16, remember where Paul and Silas find themselves in Philippi? In a jail cell, in the middle of the night. They're not praying that they'll be released. They're not sulking that God hasn't protected them. No, we read about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're singing hymns. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. We pray because that is a witness. We praise because that is a witness. And finally, we pray because it's good for us. God doesn't need our praise. Remember that. He didn't need our praise for eternity past before he created the universe. But we need to praise. I, I always wonder, are we afraid we're going to be too happy? And that would, that would be bad? Like we should feel guilty about it? I'll tell you this, when we have our elder meetings in the library on Tuesday nights, we can barely hear each other talk sometimes. Because next door is one of the three weekly meetings of Resplendor de Gloria, the, the Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church that uses the, the chapel during that time. And they are not holding back. And they don't care what we think because they're going, they're going 100% praise. And I've never heard them say, can you hear what you're talking about? Nah. God can hear their praise. And that's what they're completely engrossed in. I think there's something beautiful we can learn from every stripe of Christianity, every tradition within the church, and that's what we learn from that charismatic Pentecostal uh, corner of the kingdom. How to lift up our hearts in praise and not worry about what anyone else thinks of our love, our adoration, our praising our God. Not being worried that we'll look too happy or too unhinged. You know what resplendor de gloria means? I've always translated it splendor of glory. I typed it into Google Translate. It means blaze of glory. Another song that I can't hear without singing. Blaze of glory. We always talk about going down in a blaze of glory. They're going up in a blaze of glory. They are praising God. Their praise is going up. And when we praise him, it is good for us. Our eyes are opened up. Like when we see God more clearly by praising Him and meditating on His attributes, His perfections, which are, by the way, one and the same. What was it that John was doing? He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day praising God when he saw all of these amazing things that he wrote down in the book of Revelation. Our cares are cast up. Cast all your cares upon me. When you're praising him and reminded of all that he's done for us and all that he is and, and how he was and is and is to come, we can trust him more deeply and more easily. Our minds are opened up to his glory and power as they've been darkened and dulled and polluted by the world. What is it that Zechariah is doing when he sees anew what God will do in his life? Zechariah the priest, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he's in the temple, in the holy place, praising God, offering up worship on behalf of the people. Our hearts are bound up if they're broken. As we remember, this God is for us, so who can be against us? Our hearts are filled up with hope and love and encouragement. Our heads are lifted up from despair to see God at work. 
Second Chronicles 20, 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. They had lost all hope. Their heads were down. And in praise, God lifted them up. Doors are opened up, quite literally for Paul and Silas. The doors just opened. The bonds fell off. And our faith is shored up where there are holes in it. Built up, that means, and it bolstered. All of this while we throw down our coats and our palm branches before the Lord as He enters into our presence, coming to take His kingdom. As we throw down our crowns before His throne, as we throw down every weight and sin that easily entangles and take up our cross with praise on our lips. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this beautiful picture in the Scriptures of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry. Lord, we so often are quick to, to say it didn't last long. The people abandoned him. Everyone scattered and turned away. Lord, let us stop and remember that our praise as well is imperfect. Our loyalty as well falls apart here and there when times get tough. Lord, we are so thankful that you love us all the same, that your blood covers a multitude of sins, that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Lord, we are so thankful that Jesus came and entered into Jerusalem. He didn't have to. He could have looked down at that city, thought about how ungrateful we are as humans, thought about how they were already working to, to destroy him and turned and ridden away in some other direction. But he went in. He went in out of love. He went in to lay down his life for us. Lord, we pray that we would lift up our voices for him and to you. Amen.